Welcome to the Karuna Live podcast, an audio version of our free virtual Karuna Live events. Each month, a Karuna faculty member shares their knowledge and wisdom on a topic in which contemplative psychology is applied to daily life. The word Karuna means compassion in Sanskrit. Karuna training brings together a community of people who trust the wisdom of the world to awaken our compassionate hearts. We can learn to resource ourselves and integrate our experiences in a way that we can live a more empowered life. The world needs our compassion, health, and wisdom. We hope you enjoy this Karuna Live episode. Welcome to the Karuna Training Podcast. This episode is called Four Ways to Love with Miriam, myself, and my guest, Naoko. Um, my name is Miriam. I use she, her pronouns. I live on Techope lands, Ho-Chunk lands, named Techope by the Ho-Chunk people. The conventional name is Madison, Wisconsin. And my guest, Naoko. Thank you, Miriam. So I'm Naoko. My pronouns are she and her. And I'm doing this podcast from the unceded territory of the, of the Lenape people, or New York City. And um, I am one of the lead teachers for Karuna, uh, as is Miriam. I was part of the first cycle of Karuna training in North America, which was held in 2014, where I met Miriam. So it's been 10 years now we've known each other, and we've been on the Karuna journey as uh, participants, as facilitators for other cycles, and now as teachers. And I'm really excited to do this podcast with her. Same. Wonderful. And we're, we're also going to be lead teachers in the next cycle that's going to happen in North America, which will be starting this autumn. So if you've been interested in doing Karuna training, you've watched some of our lives, attended some of our shorter programs, um, go to our website and find out a little more about the basic training cycle that's going to be coming up. So um, I do want to start by just talking about how this podcast came about. And it really arose from some questions we had about love. So we're doing this podcast in February. So we have Valentine's Day this month, which is the day of love. But in Buddhism, we really don't talk much about love. In fact, the word love is rarely used in the teachings. So the question we had was, does this mean love is not important? In Buddhism? Well, it turns out that that's not true at all. But before we get into that, I just want to talk about the word love itself and how it's used in the English language. So this is something that I've always questioned about. It's, uh, English compared to other languages is slightly different. In English, we may say things like, I love ice cream, but we may also use, I love my child or I love my spouse. So when we know that the, the word that we use for love is applied to our favorite food, which is actually different than the love we have for our loved ones, both in terms of quality and quantity, it's actually very different. And yet we use the same word, right? We use the word love for both expressions. And this was always perplexing to me because it really lacks precision about the actual feeling that we have. And I think that in Buddhism, what we call love in relationships is actually described much more precisely, much more in detail. 
and it's really broken down. And I think this is what many Buddhist teachings uh, do anyway. They break things down, right? Because love comes in all different flavors, and they have different energies. And it's not just one thing. So in Buddhism, we really get into the different qualities of love. So today, uh, we're going to talk about one of the classical teachings from Buddhism called the Four Immeasurables. So this teaching has, it's also called the Four uh, Immeasurable. This teaching has other different names, such as Four Limitless Ones or the Four Sublime States. Um, that sounds all very exotic. But the expression that most resonates with me that I've heard used is the four faces of love or the four flavors of love or the four elements of love. And in Sanskrit, uh, this teaching is called the four Brahma Viharas, which literally means the dwelling place of Brahma. And Brahma is the name of a Hindu god with four faces. And it's said that he dwelled in these four laws. So this teaching is really about the four flavors of love that already resides in us. There are quality in us already that are fundamental to being human. And they're specifically loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And we'll talk more about each one of these in this podcast. But you could sort of think of them as the heart having four expressions of love that are unlimited and unconditional. And in Karuna terms, we could even say that these are the four potencies of the heart. Beautiful. Thank you, Nelko. Most folks, if they're familiar with this practice, so we're, we're having a conversation first at this podcast, and then a couple weeks later, we'll have a practice podcast that will come out as well, where we'll guide you through this practice. And the most common way that people talk about this practice, the four potencies, the four flavors, the four faces, um, is to simply call it meta or maitri practice, M-E-T-T-A or maitri, M-A-I-T-R-I. Metta is from Pali, Maitri is from Sanskrit. And at the same time, it's good to note that that word specifically, Metta Maitri, points to just the first, loving kindness, points to just the first. Um, loving, loving friendliness or benevolence or care are some other names that are given to this first, Metta Maitri. The full practice includes also um, Karuna, which is compassion, as now Goba saying compassion. Sanskrit word is karuna, which is what karuna training is named after. Um, upeka, which is equanimity. And then mudita, which is sympathetic joy. And you'll notice sometimes we'll swap the order of sympathetic joy and equanimity. And that's just depending on the, the tradition. Um, usually we start with loving kindness and compassion. And the other two can get swapped around. We do work with these qualities in karuna training in part so that we can really explore the facets of compassion, right? So even though compassion is one of the facets of love, these are all aspects of compassion. Love and compassion are very close together in terms of deep care. And one of the things that we 
practice, one of our main practices in Karuna training is called Maitri Space Awareness. So that same word, Maitri, loving kindness, space awareness. And the idea is that um, as we're working with the energy of emotion, we need to have a skillful relationship with the energy of that emotion. The energy flows through space, and each of the emotions and these states, these four faces are tied to the elements and tied to different ways of understanding how our relationships work. So being able to navigate that, um, that universe of our emotional experience and energy, have, being able to have an understanding of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joint equanimity really helps us navigate the emotional level of our experience. Yeah, and um, you know that, that we talked a lot about love and kindness, and that brings us to another question we had in thinking about this podcast. And that question was, why do we stop at love and kindness? You know, as Miriam said, Maitri or Metta or love and kindness practice is quite common, but we don't often hear about the other qualities as much. And while it's true that there's more compassion practice uh, recently, just as a response to the times that we're living in with so much suffering and conflicts around the world and in our country. But we don't really hear about sympathetic joy or equanimity practice as much. And so I started thinking, why is that? And if you think about metta as the wish for happiness, I think we can all agree that everyone wants to be happy, right? It's the basic goodwill that wishes the well-being of ourselves. It doesn't matter your gender, your age, your race, uh, your religion, sexuality. Everyone, deep down in our hearts, all have a wish for true happiness. And we don't just have this wish for ourselves, but for others. Um, because other, seeing other people happy makes us happy. So this is the wish that we can direct to others, and it's also the basis for the other flavors of love. So we're really touching into something that's quite universal when we talk about loving-kindness. We can say um, we all have a sort of a basic human need for happiness. Yeah, and the, the so basic human need, I love how you talk about that, is this kind of more accessible place that we can see, like, oh, yes, this is something that I can relatively easily say, like, I want others to be happy. I want myself to be happy. I think the reason why compassion can be a little bit trickier, um, on the one hand, we don't want others to suffer. That would be similar to happiness. But real compassion practice, when we're actually really looking at compassion, it means feeling with someone. So feeling their suffering, relating to their suffering. And we want to relate to other people's happiness, but we don't so much want to relate to their suffering. It's not as pleasant of an experience. Um, and I found teaching this practice over time as well, that we really believe that there's a limited amount of compassion, right? So we have expressions like compassion fatigue. People sort of feel like, oh, I don't have enough compassion for that person. And that's where the translation of this practice um, as the limitless ones is so helpful for me to remember that these qualities are actually limitless. 
our access to them, our ability to access and express them may feel limited. That doesn't mean it is limited. And certainly the amount of bandwidth that we have for taking in the news may feel limited, but that doesn't mean that our compassion is limited. It just means that we need to build resilience or what um, Karuna training teacher Melissa Moore calls our intensity capacity so that we can take in that information. Um, and recently I've been reflecting, uh, I moved house for the first time in 20 years, which if you sort of Google, like, what are the top 10 stressors? Most yeah. surveys will say like moving house is up there with divorce, job change, yeah. et cetera. Right. It's really freaking stressful in case you haven't moved recently. Yeah. And, um, and I also am really in, in touch with attuned to paying attention to what's happening in Palestine and people being genocided there. And with a move, especially, it's really not hard for me to say, like, I, I need compassion around this. Like, I need compassion from others. I need self-compassion around the move. It's not easy. I recognize that it's not the same as being driven from my land, as being genocided or ethnically cleansed. I know they're not the same thing. And there is enough compassion for me to feel that and ask that of others who are resourced, and also to still have compassion for people who are being oppressed. And I think that's something that we, we often somehow subconsciously believe that people who are suffering less don't deserve compassion, <laughs> that there's a limited quantity. I'm not saying that I should take up as much bandwidth um, on media with my moving stress. I'm so glad that, you know, information's getting out there about Sudan and the Congo as well. But there is a quality of that compassion and its limitlessness that when I can believe in that, I can remember that caring for me and caring for others really helps actually feed my well rather than deplete some large well of compassion that's out there. So we can hold both and and not have a competitive, competitive quality around compassion. Mm. I think that's really well said. And I really like that um, example of your personal situation of moving and also looking at the suffering in Palestine or any other parts of the world. And I, I do want to just mention equanimity, which is the other one that doesn't really get talked about, sometimes translated as spaciousness or freedom, is probably the least understood of all the four qualities of love. And sometimes it's misunderstood as even being indifferent or being impartial. But it's really more about our capacity to accommodate everything without being attached to or affected by them. And it's very similar to all-encompassing space. And different schools of Buddhist practice uh, teach about equanimity a little bit differently as well. And I think the most common is how it acts as a kind of support uh, and a balancing factor for the other three. So, for example, how we respond to situations with friendliness or compassion or joy depends on our minds and hearts to be relaxed and alert enough to have enough equanimity. And that will allow us to actually stay connected to our goodwill that's balanced and in harmony with our original intention. So, for example, equanimity balances loving kindness by allowing love to be expressed in a way that's without attachment and without conditions. Right? And then when working with compassion, 
you know, we may encounter some suffering that's really difficult for us to stay present with. And in those times, we can actually fall back on equanimity to avoid creating more suffering for ourselves or more agony or turmoil. And instead, rely on equanimity to help channel our energy in a way that actually allows us to actually be of help. And equanimity can also support joy so that we don't fall into this kind of elated states where we actually become ungrounded. (laughs) So equanimity allows us to be fully present, but also respond appropriately with a balanced view, without a preference for any real result or state, or become susceptible to any extremes. And in some other Buddhist schools, equanimity is actually taught as the first of the four immeasurables. And the thought there is that equanimity arises through the awareness that we cultivate in our mindfulness practice. So you start with equanimity, and you then talk about loving-kindness, compassion, and uh, joy. I I love, when you mentioned that, I hadn't encountered that before, and when you mentioned it, that felt really intuitively right to me, because we mentioned that they're tied to the elements, and Mm -hmm. equanimity is tied to earth. So it's like a feeling of grounding Mm -hmm. in equanimity as we go through the others. There's real benefit in putting them in any order, but I I really appreciate that description of putting equanimity first. Um, And just to say, to touch back, because I hadn't mentioned this earlier, that um, loving kindness is tied to water and compassion is tied to um, fire. And then the last, what we're calling sympathetic joy, is tied to air and wind. Um, Sympathetic joy, I think, as Nelko was saying, these last couple of ones, equanimity and sympathetic joy, don't get practiced as much. Often the focus is more on loving kindness um, and or compassion. And sympathetic joy, I've always found to be kind of an awkward phrasing. And I've read many teachers say, like, that's really not a great translation. But it, like you were saying about love now, Co, like, we do not have a good word for this in yeah. English, you know, which is yeah. quite telling, actually, that we don't yeah. have a word for this in English. Except um, I happen to have uh, some friends who are involved in the polyamorous community. And it turns out there's a word in that community for for sympathetic joy, basically, which is compersion, C-O-M-P-E-R-S-I-O-N. And compersion is if your partner is having, is actually having a pleasure, not just joy, but like having pleasure with another partner that you can be happy for them, that you can find pleasure in their pleasure. And I feel like that's like the ultimate. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. For a culture that tends towards monogamy, like yeah. being able to yeah. be like excited for our partner's excitement with someone else is like mm-hmm. the next level um, sympathetic joy. Right. But I love that word because then it's like they had to make up a word for this mm-hmm. because it does not exist in English. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's partly because envy gets in the way, right? So envy and jealousy are quality, a feeling of either I want what they have or they have something I should have. Um, and how powerful is it for us to, you know, if we're dealing with envy and jealousy a lot, it doesn't mean we don't feel those things. Like, let ourselves have that feeling. But then, in addition, 
can we also say, I love that for you, Mm -hmm. right? I love that for you. Like, I love that for you and I kind of like it for myself, but I also love that for you. Mm -hmm. And that's what we mean by sympathetic joy. And ultimately, I found that the appreciation that actually is inherent to wanting something, right? So if I want a relationship with someone, if I want a particular job, um, if I want a book, that wanting comes from appreciation. That's why we feel such joy and excitement about a person, an object, or a state of mind. And so if we can come from that place of appreciation, that actually brings a very deep joy that helps liberate us from this state of, of limited, again, this quality of there's not enough joy to go around, um, that takes us out of equanimity, that makes us less friendly, and that makes it harder for us to experience compassion. So there's actually, I've often found that the jo- this joy could be called liberating joy, not just sympathetic joy. Yeah, this is such, uh, I'm loving this conversation, Miriam, because such so, it's so rich, right? Because just mm-hmm. keep talking, I guess. Um, and there's so much more about each of these flavors of love. But uh, I thought we can talk about the practice now to give an idea of how this gets applied. Yeah. And also touch on our experience of doing the practice. Great. So the practice is applied to different levels of beings. And I'm going to just talk about the really traditional way to practice. And it's actually in seven steps, uh, usually in this order. So you first start uh, by applying to a, what we call a benefactor. So that could be a teacher, a mentor, a hero, someone who has guided you, encouraged you, it's been a cheerleader for you, right? We start there because it's relatively easy to generate these qualities for someone who really cares about you and has looked after you. And then the second step is ourselves. So we always include ourselves in this practice. Because if we can't apply to ourselves, it's going to be hard to do it for others. And then the third is a beloved. So it could be a family member, it could be your lover, a friend, someone dear to you. So up to now, it seems relatively straightforward, right? And then it becomes a little bit more challenging. So the fourth person is um, what we call a neutral person, or like strangers, right? People you meet on the streets, you could see them on the streets. Uh, people you might sit next to on the plane, the train. It's, you don't know their names, um, but you see them. Maybe it's, it's someone at work who you've never spoken to, right? And then the fifth person is people we're having difficulty with. So maybe you have a conflict with them. Maybe you've have just had an argument with them, right? And then the sixth step is to bring together everyone you've brought to mind so far, Right, so you're going to bring them to your circle, and you apply the, the 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 practice to them, or you could think of a group of people, right? Or it could be a community, or an organization. And then the last step is all beings, right? So the idea is that we, it doesn't matter, it's all sentient beings. Everyone is included. So as you can see, this practice can be applied to all relationships. And there's also the sense of expansion, right, of these categories of people we apply. So the practice isn't limited to just the people you know or the people you met. It can really grow into a much bigger practice. 
And I'm reminded of Bell Hooks, who has an essay called Love as the Practice of Freedom. So I started thinking about how this practice of love can be used to cultivate the sense of collective liberation, of collective freedom. And if you look at the civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King, that movement was rooted in the foundation of love. He had the profound insight to see that you can move masses of people for racial justice based on love. That, that's what touches people. That's what, that was, that's what makes people act, right? So, you know, this, again, this is so fundamental to being human. So when I first was introduced to this practice, even though these are very profound teachings, I have to say, I was a bit skeptical about whether this was really going to work for me. Go for it. Be truthful. Because <laughs> I think a lot of people feel that way. Like, isn't yeah. this just positive thinking? Yeah. <laughs> but then I heard Sharon Salzberg speak at a talk. Now, Sharon Salzberg is a prominent Buddhist teacher and author. She's also very well known for her work on loving kindness. And she talked about the first time she ever did loving kindness practice. And it was at a retreat at the center that they just opened for her Buddhist community. And she started the practice by dedicating the first week of sending herself loving kindness. So she did this all day, right? Reciting, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. And she talks about how she felt nothing. <laughs> right, and at the end of the week, something happened in the community, and many people had to leave. And she felt really bad, because not only did nothing happen, she barely got beyond herself. Right? But as she was preparing to leave the retreat, she accidentally dropped a jar that shattered on the floor. And the first thing she said was, oh, you're such a klutz, but I love you. And this surprised her because it was so spontaneous. You know, typically she would have said something like, oh, you're such a klutz, what an idiot. Right? So something happened. There was a change. And this practice is not about making something happen. But with practice, it will become a part of you. Mm -hmm. And something will change inside over time if you stick with it. So mm -hmm. this practice is something that I did when my mother got very sick and uh, she was hospitalized. I focus mostly on compassion, the four qualities, wishing her to be free from suffering. And my mother passed away. But when I really think about it, it actually helped me a lot to face a very difficult, heartbreaking situation with actually an open heart and equanimity. So that has been my experience doing this uh, practice. And I thought I'd share the story about Sharon, because I think we could all relate to her. <laughs> right, whether or not our mother has passed away. And I also appreciate you sharing that personal story. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I sometimes say to people, um, Karuna training doesn't just work with these four limitless ones. We work with lots of other teachings around emotion and compassion as well, but these, because these pieces float up in formal ways, like the practice that we're going to lead and also in informal ways, I often tell people that doing these practices saved my marriage. So I've been together with my, my partner for seven, we, we were now spouses. We've been together for 17 years. We've been married for 15 years. And um, we had a rough kind of first half so far, right? So about half of our marriage ago, seven, eight years ago, we had a pretty difficult patch where my spouse was struggling with um, mental and physical health issues. And um, I could be a little controlling, Yes, some stuff going on. Um, I'm an entrepreneur. I run my own business. Like I like things to be a particular way. And, um, and you know, just felt like things were a little out of control and I wanted to control them and I wanted to change how they operated. And I didn't have much. The key thing is that I didn't have really enough appreciation or, um, a sense of equanimity, being able to actually look at them and see them as they are. That was another way that you've described equanimity too, which is like being with things as they are. I wasn't able to be with my spouse as they are. And they were actually able to say to me, you know, I, I said, like, if you don't, if this doesn't change, I need to leave. And my spouse answered, if you don't accept that this is just inherently part of how I am, I need to leave. And oh, I was like, wow. Well, yeah. Oh my God. Like, first yeah. of all, I thought I'd be the one. <laughs> but yeah. that was like, wow. oh, wow, that really helped a lot. And, and being able to work with the element of earth and working with equanimity, I, I'm kind of an earth sign person. I have a lot of, you know, sort of Taurus, a lot of earth in my sign, generally a pretty grounded person, but it can also get stagnant right? Where I'm like, I don't want anything to change. <laughs> I want to be rock solid. Um, and that was like drips of loving kindness, drips of water on, on the kind of earth, the stagnant earth that really opened me up so that I could actually accept our situation as is, which by the way, benefited me. That's part of the power of this practice is it is so important for us to include ourselves consciously but also when we do it for others, we benefit ourselves. So by, by being more accepting of my spouse's anxiety, for instance, I got more accepting my own anxiety and realized how much of the time I was like not dealing with my own stuff over here. And we just projected onto them. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't change myself, but maybe I could change them. Yeah. And who needs to be changed here? Maybe neither of us do. Mm -hmm. And that equanimity being with it as is just really, really helps so much, um, for the, for the sustainability of our relationship, really. Yeah. Yeah. What, what a great story. And it just really tells you that, well, I guess as with all basic Buddhist teachings, there's a wide application, right? And the four Brahma, uh, Brahma Viharas can be applied to yourself, to family members, to romantic relationships, to work relationships, um, like a one-on-one -on -one plus and applied to groups of people, even to a country, to systems, right? There are endless possibilities. And while applying some of these four flavors of love to our relationships can sometimes feel quite daunting, right? Yeah. Like it's very hard to wish happiness and joy to someone who's harmed or 
we've disregarded you, right? That's a really hard ask. Um, but we just have to remember that these four qualities of love are our very nature. And we can practice them as we are, as you said. Right? If we were to put this really simply, I would say that all we really need to do is to want for others what we want for ourselves. You know, in some ways, we're just kind of making space for others. And as you practice, I'm really seeing how each of these four flavors really weave in together, right? And they support one another. So it's not like this linear progression. They're very much connected. They're not separate because they are aspects of the same thing. And lastly, I just want to give an encouragement for everyone who's listening, because maybe you're also still a bit skeptical of this teaching, as I was at first. And I'd just like to offer another translation for Brahma Viharas, which is um, divine abodes or heavenly abodes. So when you can experience these laws, they say it's like living in heaven right here on earth. So hopefully that is some inspiration for you to explore and practice the four Brahmahataharas. Mm. Thank you. I, one of the things I love about preparing for this podcast together was just like seeing all of the translations, all of the ways that teachers talk about these teachings and how each of them bring out a different facet of the practice. So we've been talking about a practice. This has been four ways to love, four different ways in love, four aspects of love, faces of love. And um, we're going to wrap up our conversation here. And then in, if you're listening to this um, on or near Valentine's Day, in a couple of weeks, a recording will come out, slightly shorter recording, with Naoko and I leading you through the practice. Um, in the meantime, it be wonderful. If you want to listen to this again, pass it along to someone else. Take a look up some of the four Brahma Viharas so that you can reflect on some of these ideas yourself. I look forward to uh, talking to you in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening to this Karuna Live audio episode. We hope you have found the episode supportive. If you'd like to attend a free virtual Karuna Live, please visit us at karunatraining.com. Thank you.